Welcome to the New Hope Sermon of the Week. We hope you are encouraged by this message by Pastor Tom Sturgeon. There is not a week, a time that I, that I come to worship where I'm not aware of, of certain things. And, and that is, the Bible calls us to teach the Word of God. Jesus taught the Word of God. So how many know that teaching the Word is, is an, an essential thing we do? It's all throughout Scripture. We teach, we learn. But see, here's the other side of the equation. Is as we worship God, however we may worship in prayer or praise, acts of worship, but pointedly as we sing songs of praise, God's Word says that He is enthroned on the praises of His people. That is, His presence, the Spirit of God is somehow made more tangible, is awakened. It it rises up in us and begins to overflow. Here's the deal. You see, the Bible refers to the Word of God as the Word of truth. It refers to the Holy Spirit of God as the Spirit of truth. Are you not thankful that the Spirit of truth has the capacity to bring us to an understanding of the Word of truth? Listen, because... The big, the Spirit of God, capital S, intersects with my spirit, little s. And of course, we studied years ago from John 4, that the point at which his spirit intersects with my spirit is what we know to be worship when Jesus would say, those that worship must worship in spirit and in truth. And at that moment, we come before the Lord, there's this intersection. So here's what I'm aware of, and here's the frustration, because If I were to use this word anointing, and it's a word that I don't use often in the way that I grew up hearing it. If we heard a song that moved us and gave us cold chills, bumps, we'd say, oh my, they're anointed. If we heard a preacher that would preach something to the point that we maybe have been stimulated emotionally or psychologically, we'd say, isn't that anointed? And so that term is used a lot in certain circles. I heard it nonstop. But that is not the way the Bible uses the term so much. Matter of fact, I don't know that it's the way the Bible uses the term at all. The Bible says that we are the anointed in whom the anointing abides. That's the good news. So you need to understand that you are the anointed irrespective of goosebumps or anything that stimulates you. You are the anointed in whom the anointing has been poured. See, in the Old Testament, Lord, help my memory here. The they anointed uh, prophets, priests, kings, and things. I think that's the little memory thing that I used. Prophet, priest, kings, and things. What things? Articles for the temple and the tabernacle. Anything that was anointed, the understanding was that it was holy haram. And set aside unto God. Here's the good news. Whatever became holy unto God, God empowered to accomplish the purpose. So when it says in the New Testament, we, you, me, we are the anointed in whom the anointing abides. Isn't it great to know that God has set us aside, claimed us for his own set us aside for a unique purpose. But see, that's where the adversary would slither in and say, you'll never accomplish that purpose because you're not enough. You're not strong enough, smart enough, whatever enough. But the good news is, is God says, whatever he sets us aside for in his purpose, he will empower us to accomplish. 
So that, that, is a, that is a wonderful, a wonderful, you can be the husband, the father, the wife, the mother, the son, the daughter, the employee, the employer that God has called you to be. You can be. The thing is determining that. Now, I want to leap back to when I was, I just chased a rabbit, which is not unfamiliar territory for those of you who come in here week in, week out. If the, the first unique point of grace that I can recall, and that's probably the, the substitution term that I would use for the way that anointing is used. Um, and I could, and I've taught on that and where, where that comes from in the New Testament. But the first, if you will, anointing or unique expression of grace, and we all have them. They're, they're called spiritual gifts. That word is charisma. Everybody say charisma. That's two words. The word charis is grace. Then the M-A at the end is a wonderful little term. It essentially means this. It means the concrete expression of whatever noun it's attached to. So watch this. When God says, I've, gifts, I've given spiritual gifts to each person as I severally design. Listen to me. That is a concrete expression of grace in your life. I don't believe that the, the list of those that Paul writes is a, an exhaustive list. There are gifts we have. I think one of the, the, the first one that I ever understood or sensed was playing an instrument and, and leading in worship. So this is a longer journey to explain what happens at this point in the worship service uh, every time. I'm, I was, I am, it was the first one and one I am most familiar with. I discovered a second point of grace later on. It was not one I was looking for. I didn't grow up wanting to be a preacher. As a matter of fact, when we accepted an appointment and a place in a little family island, to be a pastor, I did not see it as a lifelong thing. I saw it as a fill-in. I was a temp. I was a fill-in until they got somebody who could really do the job. And that is honestly the truth. It's what we said and agreed. It's like, well, sure, you know, we can go do that. And, and many of you know the longer and larger story. But I, I began to become aware of a second point of a grace deposit in teaching the word of God. And of course, it just gripped my soul as well. But here's the thing. Why all this talk? The thing I wrestle with <laughs> is because I, the things, I have learned things equally in an atmosphere of teaching that I have learned in an atmosphere of worship where nothing was taught. Because it was the spirit of truth writing According to 2 Corinthians 3, writing, transforming the word of truth. It was the spirit of truth writing the word of truth, even though that truth was not a scripture verse I was reciting in my mind. Anybody get what I'm understanding? That in moments of worship, at the level of the spirit, we will get it. We'll get things that we didn't know how we got. Because we most typically think, I get it when I think it, process it, hear it begin to sort of dissect it, and then I can appropriate it here. But see, the Spirit of God is that Spirit that leaps beyond the limitations of my mind and allow me to get it and grasp it and hold it in my heart before I ever conceive of it in my mind. That's amazing to me. 
So every service that we've shared together for 17 years, we come to this awkward intersection, and I have already spent 13 minutes at this awkward intersection. I try not to do that every week and fail miserably every week because there's always the what if. What if? What if this is the moment? I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every me now, my Savior, I come to thee. What if there is a moment that we're rushing by because we've allotted X amount of minutes on our liturgy? Oh, goodness. What if God is saying, oh, let's just hang out here for a minute. What if God is saying, hey, I just got there. <laughs> I, I, I wrestle with that. I, I wrestle with that. I write, I write songs about that. Okay, enough of that. Because I believe we're supposed to do both, and I have to do this. And I've come to announce to you this morning, and you're going to laugh at what I say, because it, perhaps maybe you won't. <clears throat> I hope you do. I'm going to come to announce my incompetence to continue this series on shame. And okay, so there's no laughter, so you probably have heard two sermons and say, no, I agree with you. But there you are. I, I really have been, and I talked to Brenda about, of course, you'd be re, probably comfort and relieved to know that we actually do talk about the Bible um, every day, often. And it's not like we're so holy, that's all we talk about. Um, uh, that is not the case, right? Um, but we, it is the center of our lives individually and our marriage collectively, which I'm going to come to in a moment. And so we've begun this and I begin to think back on this series on shame and, and, uh, and I encourage you to go read the author, Brene Brown, her writings, uh, uh, dare to be great. I would encourage you to start there. Dare to be great. Okay. Um, that if she does not write from a Christian or biblical perspective at all, but her PhD work was on and in shame. If you listen to TED Talks, her TED Talk is one of the uh, top 10 listened to 40 million times on shame and vulnerability, how we can deal with shame. And I found her uh, and her writings about six months ago after one year of wrestling with the difference between Genesis 2.25 and then Genesis 3.11 or 13 or somewhere, somewhere around Genesis 2.25, after the creation of man and woman, uh, it says, and they were naked and not ashamed. Naked and not ashamed. Now, when you begin from that point, that is the, I'm pretty sure, the closing verse in chapter 2. And then it launches into... Uh, the, the 
the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, that launches into a description of the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. The serpent slithers into the garden, and he begins to whisper things to them. Now, this is an important thing that happens here. I sincerely want to apologize for those of you, to those of you that have been here, and I talked to Brenda about this week for years, because by now, deception, fear, and hiding must be tattooed on your brain. And when you hear those three words, no doubt your mental response is begging me not to talk about them again. Deception, fear, and hiding. I talk about them everywhere I go because I think it's the thing that we leap over. If I talk to pastors, if I talk to churches, if I talk any place, I'm going to talk about it because it is, if I talk to leaders, because it is the fundamental thing we wrestle with individually in our jobs. Let me change the order of that. Individually, in our marriages, in our relationships to some extent. Now, what we learn is that mankind is placed in the garden. Now, I'm, I'm going to try to find a way of laying this out. John chapter 8, verse 44. Amanda, are we having, um, we're going to be able to get these up here. I'm going to choose them probably in a different order. John chapter 8, I'm going to give them to you. If you have your Bibles or smartphones, you can track. Now, leave that up there for a while. This is Jesus speaking. He is speaking to the disciples. As a matter of fact, he is, he, it is this chapter where it is sta- stated, He that the Son makes free is free indeed. A lot of times we think he was talking about himself, and he was, but not in the way we think. And and we just sang a a song that said, I have been made free. It's in this environment, a woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Her nakedness has been exposed. In all likelihood, she has been thrown down in the courtyard of the temple at the feet of Jesus, presumably still naked, thrown at his feet, accused of adultery, say we have to stone her. And it's that famous passage where Jesus turns he writes in the dirt and the sand, and then he says, those of you who do not have any sin, cast the first stone. It's in that context that they begin a discussion about freedom. Now, he goes on and he goes back and forth, and the Pharisees are arguing with him. And then he launches this. He says, you don't believe, in verse before, he says, you won't listen to me or believe me. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. How many know those are pretty strong words? He says, to do the desires of your father, watch, he was a murderer from the beginning. Those are key words we need to watch. Genesis, the book starts in the first verse, in the beginning. So he's talking about the beginning. The Garden of Eden was the beginning. When Jesus says he was a murderer from the beginning, the beginning is the beginning. And he's referring to the activities of this adversary, the serpent, listen to me, in the Garden of Eden as he slithers into mankind. He said he is a murderer from the beginning. How many know a murderer does what? Takes life. It's not ironic that two chapters later, Jesus would make note of himself as the good shepherd who has come to bring life, not take it, but to give life and that more abundantly. The adversary, the whisper of the adversary, he always whispers in lies. And when he does, it's for purposes of taking the quality of life that God would otherwise give to us. As we keep reading, he says he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth. 
Now, we have learned throughout the years that truth is a key component for worship. As I cited only a moment ago, that he, that those that worship the Lord will worship in spirit and in truth. And the word truth, many of you could finish it right here, is a compound word that means unhidden or to unhide. And praise God, the answer for a mankind that hid from God in the beginning was to send a Redeemer who unhid himself. Who, if you will, stepped out of hiding into full view, walked among us for 33 years, and every place he went, he would unhide person after person after person after person. He would unhide their brokenness. But we're going to learn something about that that I've only learned in the last couple of weeks that just stunned me. It says, and he does not stand in truth. Because there is no truth in him. There is no unhiddenness in him. Listen, if the adversary is speaking, he is going to call us to hide from one another and from God. I'm going to get to that in just a moment. If his lips move, Jesus says he is lying and he is deceiving. He says he does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Or in the simpler sense of southern colloquialisms, if his lips are moving, he's lying. Jesus wants to unmask that in all its finality. So we go back to that story. It was central to the message of Christ. He said, but I've called you to stand in truth. You don't have to hide. Those who worship can worship and find their worth in spirit and in truth. Now, if you were to continue to read in Genesis chapter 3, it says this, that shame says that that, that God would come to walk with them in the garden in the cool of the day in verses 7 and 8. It was spirit time. And it said, they hid from the face of God. And here's where I have to be careful, and here's where I have to really say, you know, in studying this, I thought, you know, God, I don't know that I am really ready to teach on this yet. And to that end, at best I'll do with you is to ask you to join me on the journey because I still have a thousand questions that this is causing me to see in Scripture. Now, they're exciting. They're not troublesome. They're not a quandary, but they're exciting nonetheless. What happens is they eat from the knowledge, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the lie that he whispers to them is said, hey, has God said? And then he said, he's things he doesn't want you to do because he knows when you do them, you'll know as he knows. I need to say this, and, and I don't think I sent you this, man. I don't even know that I have it written down. That whenever deception begins to work on us, it starts with accusing what we should trust of deception. Let me say that. I believe since the fall, there is stamped on the soul of every human being, please hear me, a suspicion about God. That what it says, what his word says cannot be trusted. Because here's the simple fact. If we believed that what he said in his word could be trusted, everyone would trust. Everyone would do it. How many times have you 
offering a simple answer of faith to a person that may not know Christ, caught in the grip of a moment of tragedy and struggle in life, and you tell them something about your faith or the Word of God, and they look back and say, I'm sorry, life is not that simple, and it is not that simple, but coming to God is, and it's unbelievable that the complexities of life can simply be remedied and acknowledged in the presence of God. Why? Because it goes back to what I said accidentally. That when the Spirit still comes to walk with us and in us and live through us, He begins to resolve matters that are beyond the limitations of my mind. He brings a peace that passes understanding. He brings a joy that is unspeakable and full of the radiant splendor and majesty, glory of God. Those things happen. And if you find a saint of God that has walked with God any time at all, they will tell you that their ability to walk with God comes from something that is beyond their comprehension, not only to comprehend it, but now my ability to describe that. Do you get that? It's a peace more than I can, uh, than I can even comprehend. And it's a joy more than I can explain. And yet that is the faith and the life we live. And people will look at us and say, it just can't be that simple. Because ever since the fall, there has been stamped again on every human being, primarily a suspicion towards God. Now, in Genesis 2.25, it says they were naked and not ashamed. By the time you get to chapter 3, they've eaten of that tree that God comes to walk with them. And now it said they sewed together fig leaves to cover themselves and then they hid from God. There are two different things. If the fig leaves would have been sufficient, that's all they would have done. They sewed fig leaves and they hid from God. It is my suspicion and belief, something I had not seen before, that the fig leaves were for purposes of hiding from each other Then the Hiding was for purposes of staying away from the presence of God. So here's what is now stamped on us from the fall of Eden. Watch this. I can't let, I'm pointing to my wife. I can't let you see and I can't let him near. Those are things. We, we are scared to death that we're going to let somebody See all that is me, all the things where my fears, where my shame is that I can't let you see, I can't let him near. Everybody get that? The fig leaves cover what you can see, but there's something inside the mankind that said fig leaves won't hide me from God. That's never a question. And then God comes into the garden and asks the question that he never intended for mankind to hear. Where are you? In fact, he knew, and I heard and read through the years many times that he's actually saying, why are you where you are? Those words were never supposed to be. That question was never supposed to be initiated. Now, here's what happens, and here's a couple of things I haven't know, I, that I've noticed that I'm wrestling with. I don't know that I have final answers on. You see, because we teach the Christian faith as, oh, if you come to Jesus, you'll just see, be sort of like a, a 1960s flower child. Now, for those of you that are under the age of 40 or whatever, or 30 or whatever line. You may have no idea that colloquial reference or metaphor, just a 1960s flower child. I remember seeing pictures of Woodstock. And these were the, the, the sexual revolution generation, okay? Just slightly ahead of me. And I remember seeing the pictures of Woodstock when, I don't know, I would have only been 10 or 12. And, and you, you see a picture. I mean, they posted them in magazines. Uh, it's like, oh, you shouldn't post a picture like that of people nude, standing and singing at rock songs, you know, and they got these little flower things around. And it's this, I'm just totally free, dude. 
Well, we've sort of drugged that over in the Christian faith that, man, if you really know Jesus, you're just going to be totally naked before everyone. And I don't mean in a literal sense. I mean in the worshiping sense. Oh, you just be totally open. You know, here's what I, I think. Here's what we don't know because they crashed and burned before there was any more people than just the two. But what I learned from of, of places, I began going through scripture and reading about nakedness. I expected there to be laughter there, but clearly you think I don't have any more of a life than I would go through scripture and read about nakedness. And here's what I discovered from Leviticus chapter 18 and chapter 20. You can go read it. These are the two chapters where the word nakedness shows up most densely. Now, there's several of you who will go and search that immediately, and it's not because you care anything about verifying the truth. It's like, boy, I bet that's a really cool passage of scripture if all that nakedness is going on. What God is saying there through the law, he said, I don't want, essentially is this, you're not going to be naked before any other person other than your husband or your wife. That made me go, hmm. Now, everybody get that? Again, let's go back to the garden. There was no law in the garden. I get that. There was only Adam and Eve or husband and wife. There wasn't anybody else. So we really don't know if he intended for them to be just naked before everyone. We could postulate that. But here's what we do know. They were intended to be naked before one another. And by naked, I mean transparent and open because unashamed. Now, remember, by the time you get to chapter 3, back to Genesis 3, they said, well, he said, why are you where you are? I said, well, we were deceived. Then we were afraid. And please get this. Deception, I'm modifying the statement. Deception and fear lead to shame. Shame leads to hiding. Shame is in between there. Because Genesis 2.25 says they were naked and not ashamed. Genesis chapter 3 says we were naked, but clearly they were hiding, thus ashamed. And that is a fair conclusion to come to. So something happens in between there where shame causes us to hide. But I begin to think about this. And here's an aha. I've got to go chase and pursue. One of, one of, oh goodness, I want to be careful how I state a preacher type absolute. One of the reasons that the adversary works so hard to destroy marriages is so that singular starting place on earth of transparency, openness, and nakedness, if you will, that God intended to be a healing covenant and relationship. Why do you think he worked so hard to destroy that? Why do you think he worked so hard to keep the battle going on in the home? So the last person I'm going to tell is, give her ammunition to use that against me or give him ammunition to use that against me. Can I trust you with who I am? And if I'm after anything, oh my goodness. Even as you sit here today, many married people, and you're thinking, well, no, I can't trust him or her with everything because they'll use that shame me. They'll use that to beat me down. I just got to stop there. I've got to chase that some more. In, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, the language says that Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. He endured the cross and despised the shame. Now, I want to say this. Jesus came 
and, the, and on the cross, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He came and despised. He outshamed shame on the cross. That's a little phrase we miss. I want to tell you that the cross is the remedy and the answer for the need to hide and why we hide, because shame is both why we hide and where we hide. You see, I'm trusting the spirit of truth to bring the word of truth home because there's no way that I can articulate a bullet point listing of of points and examples. But I'm praying, Father, bring that home. And may the first point of revival at New Hope Church begin in our home where someone in that home and some person in that marriage risks to say, this is never going to grow to be what God wants it to be until I'm willing to take the risk to step out from behind my fig leaves. Because until I quit trying to not let you see, there's a good chance that I won't quit trying to let him come as near as he needs to be. But here's another point I want us to get, and I'm probably just going to end right here. Mm, I can't end right here. The word shame appears in Isaiah 61, verse 7. Isaiah 61 is huge because it's a prophecy describing the mission of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. In, In Isaiah 61, verse 7, do you have that, Amanda? Isaiah 61, verse 7. I came, here, I came here full of trust this morning. I didn't bring the scripture with me. Instead of your shame, everybody say shame. You will have a double portion. Instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. They will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. Everybody say, verse 7. Shame comes in. Now. This chapter is written to a group of people who would be exiled and deported and held captive in a foreign land because they disobeyed the word of God. God said, if you do that, here's what you're going to do to yourself. This was a prophecy written during that time, but said there's going to be a way back from your place of being shamed. Just before it, it said that those who took you captive will actually finance my rebuilding purposes, which would actually happen during the time of Nehemiah and Ezra. It said, sons of foreigners will pasture your flocks and Be your vine dressers. But three verses before verse 7, we looked at a couple of weeks ago. This messianic prophecy says, I'll rebuild the ancient ruins. I'll raise up the former devastation. And I'll repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. We learned, and you can go back and listen to that teaching, that the phrase ancient ruins is the days of our father, a time not in the mind of those living today. So when we ask verse 7, Okay, where can we get an understanding of how shame comes and how it may apply to us? What is the kind of shame that this Messiah is wanting to relieve us from? I believe that there are shame and lies whispered over us from the days of our father, very often by our fathers, mothers, and those in our past. I can articulate for you two or three occasions, not so much by a father or a mother, But during those formative years, it's why here in our children's ministry, affirming them and them having a sense of God's presence is so critical. Because this may be the only place they come 
where what's on the outside, social standards and how you look and how you act and are you cool enough, are you this, are you that, it doesn't matter. Here they are valued by God. Here Pastor Jonathan and those who lead with him primarily are telling these children, you're valued because God loves you. You were made in the image of God. You're not an accident despite whatever you may think about your gender, your appearance, your look, your race, the color of your hair, of your eyes. You are fearfully and wonderfully made before the foundation of the world. God spoke concerning you and he couldn't be more pleased with the way and how he made you. You are all that. That's a good place to thank God. That's what we tell our children and why. I can go back and articulate for you two or three significant points. One you've heard the testimony of most often of being molested at nine years old for a year and having a Cub Scout leader say, you're not normal. Don't ever tell your parents about this because they'll put you in a mental institute and shame fell. And I didn't tell my parents for 20 years. They didn't know anything about it. I didn't risk telling anyone until I met her. Until in the middle of our courtship, I felt compelled for whatever reason. I didn't know this scripture. I didn't know anything about it. I just knew at the point that she had agreed to marry me that I needed to make sure there was nothing about me she didn't know. And so I told her, but I didn't tell anybody else. You see, in the days of our youth... Ancient ruins, we hear voices. Everybody say voices. Say voices. One more time, say voices. He'll rebuild the ancient ruins. He'll raise up the former devastations. Two weeks ago, you can go listen to it. I explained what those words former devastation means. It has to do with our choices. And so I want to synthesize it to this. Could it be that what scripture is telling us in this beautiful poetic sense, that the shame we carry is the result of voices and choices. The voices I listened to and the choices I've made. We can all sit and think, that's no great big revelation. We can say, yeah, that's me. But see, we've got to test it. We've got to go back to the Garden of Eden and say, is it true there? And beloved, yes, it's true there. They listened to the wrong voice and they made the wrong choice. Romans 5 tells us that. The voices and choices. I want to ask you right now, what voices are you listening to? What choices did you make by the reason of those voices that you're listening to? What choices did you make? What choice? What do you mean? What do you mean by that? I can remember voices this week as I started thinking about voices and choices. I can remember events in middle school. I can remember events in high school. I can remember being on staff at a church. You see, I, I, when I learned to play the instruments, I played, you know the story. I, it's really, I believe, just the grace of God. I can't read music. I wasn't taught. I just began to play, and, and so from there, it was a, just a wonderful grace of God. It's the first one I've known. But I can remember being a teenager and going to the first teen talent event, and not with the Church of God denomination, with another fellowship. And I can remember going and playing the song, To God Be the Glory. I'd been playing the piano about a year. I was telling Brenda about this yesterday because I asked God to bring it back to, to memory. You see, I never thought when playing the piano, uh, music was never a part of my identity. When I came when the Marine Corps, it wasn't a part of my identity. When I was a cop, uh, it wasn't part of my identity. It, when I entered ministry, it was just something I was going to do until we could find somebody else who could play the piano. Music wasn't a thing for me. And, and you wouldn't believe that today because it's a central part of my life. But I began to play. And I remember going and playing that song, To God Be the Glory, and all the humble ability that, that someone may play it. I remember them laughing and thinking, Wow. And I heard the other people play these beautiful classical pieces and how disciplined they were. And, and, and it's like, okay, 
I remember being on staff when I had 23 or 24 years old and a, and a, and a pastor at that time said, you need to understand that what our church, it wasn't a senior pastor, it was the staff pastor who has since gone home to be with the Lord. And he said, you know, the senior pastor here isn't going to use you to do anything musically because you don't play at the level of quality that's necessary for us to be on television. We're a broadcast thing. And I thought, okay. I didn't even think about it. I didn't go, wow, that really hurts my feelings. It's like, yeah, okay. I get that. It would be 30 years later that I would suddenly find out that that pastor came to me with tears in his eyes because he mentioned, I said, well, you know, here's what I knew you thought. And he says, I never said that, Tom. Tom, I never said that. But see, it's the voices you listen to and then the choices you make as a result of listening to the voices. Everybody get that? That is huge. I want to ask you, what voices are you listening to? But here's what I want to say to you and where I want to end. What I've never noticed is it's never any evidence that when God came to walk in the garden that day that they ever came out of hiding. There's no evidence. But here's the thing. God was willing to talk to them from their hiding place. Now, last week we looked at the story of the woman with the issue of blood. She had shame. You can go back and listen to that. It's online. But here's what I want to get In Luke chapter 8, the third version of this story, she had had an issue of blood. She was vaginally hemorrhaging. Under the Jewish concept, you can go read the Old Testament. Uh, When a woman was at that point of her menstrual cycle, she was unclean, supposed to be removed from people. And for her to have been bleeding vaginally for 12 years would have just been grotesque, unclean. She knew she would be rejected. Do you get that? She understood. She was Jewish. She understood that. She didn't argue with that. I got to come back and make this point today. She didn't even argue against that. So she knew if she drew attention to herself, she would be pushed away. But it says she just thought, if I could only touch the hem of his garment, I might be made whole. If I could just... Now, why did she want to touch his hem? Because he was a great power, a, a rabbi, great in word and deed and power. Everyone understood this rabbi. They spoke of him that way. The blind man spoke of him that way. But see, when she finally does touch him and Jesus says, stop everything, something's gone out of me. The disciples said, what do you mean someone's touched you something? Everybody's touching you. He says, no, power went out of me. That is Luke chapter 8, verse 46. And in verse 47, it says, when she saw, she had not escaped notice. That word is the word to hide. And it's the negative term of the, of the term for truth, unhide. This means hide. When she saw, she had not escaped notice. Let me ask you this question. Escaped whose notice? Escaped the notice of Jesus Christ and the people. But here's what she's new. Let me describe for you what shame does. She was so schooled in the law, she knew she was unclean. She knew she couldn't come up to the crowd and say, hey, it's me. I need to see him because he can fix me. She knew that. Everybody get that? That's what shame does. I I, I can't let them know because, you know, that's going to be bad. But she also couldn't tell this rabbi. So let's say, well, I can come straight to him with it. See, but the lie that shame propagates against us is I can't even tell him. Because here's what she knew. A great rabbi was a rabbi that obeyed the law. The only reason he had the power that he had, allegedly, in Jewish consciousness is because he was so obedient to the law. 
She was clearly in violation of the law, so it would not have surprised her at all had she made her way through, somehow uh, sneaked through the crowd and said to Jesus, hey, I've been bleeding, hemorrhaging for 12 years. She knew, or at least she thought she knew, that in all likelihood that rabbi would say to her, you're unclean, get away. She didn't even argue that. There's no indication she had any suspicion or any argument. Beloved, and here's where I want to tell you that shame gets us. We no longer argue with it. We're convinced of it. We're not surprised that that's what they think. We're convinced of it. We're not going to even argue with anybody about it. It's why when John would write, praise God, the same John that wrote John chapter 8, that said, he that the Son has made free is free indeed. The same John that wrote the words of Jesus in John eight forty four that he's a liar and he whispers deception and shame from the very beginning. He's also the same John that wrote in the, in the letters, the, the, the pastoral letters. He said, even when your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. I want to tell you this morning that there is a God who will still speak to you from your hiding place. I never knew, I said last week, that that's the problem I have with altar calls as we do them. Because we've got to get a head counter. I, I'm, I take that back. That's not true. People don't do that for that reason. I mean that. I'm serious. I take that back. Because I don't believe every pastor that does it does it to get a a score sheet or a head count. I don't believe that. But I, for years, I, I couldn't get over the fact that, I'll pick on you, Hans, and that there's a God who anytime we gather, he'll come, he's right here. He doesn't need you to come there to meet him or find him. There's a God that's right here that all you got to do, he'll speak to you right from your hiding place. Beloved, I don't know why that's gripped me and so big, but there's somebody that's got to get it. There's somebody that's scared to death that you can't tell your husband, you can't tell your wife, you can't tell them the thing, you can't talk about your shame, your hurt, your pain, your disillusionment, or why there's this recurring weakness in your life. You can't do that. You can't bring it up. And certainly I'm not ever going to mention it to God, so I'm just going to sort of keep my head down. I want to tell you, number one, there's a God who already knew. That rabbi she was trying to touch, he knew it before the foundation of the world. He knew it and the gospel writer said he already knew their heads and their hearts and what they were singing. It was no surprise to God. But I love how he acts surprised. He joins us in the journey of our own emancipation. And he stands there with us at the moment we discover him and says, oh joy, oh joy, as if he's experiencing it right along with us and I can go page after page after page where we serve that kind of God. And I'm reminded of me as a father when my children and now my grandchildren hide from me. And they want to play hide and seek and they're not good. There's always something sticking out. And so I played the game just last week or so with Eloise Uh, before she went on a little vacation. She's a world traveler. And she wanted to play hide and seek. And so uh, she went and hid, and she does not hide well. I'll have you know, even at four, you can rest assured, I'm better than she is. I am. May be nothing else great in life, but that's one of them. But every time I join in the joy of her in the game, when I say, where is Eloise? I'll walk right by her. Or where's Brenda Grace? Or where is not with Christina now? She's nine. She's cool. She doesn't play hide and seek with Papa anymore. But I can run, where's Brenda Grace? And Brenda Grace will have some arm or leg or head sticking out. I mean, she's just really not good at all. But she just giggles and giggles. 
Where's Brenda Grace? Well, and finally, I'll do it enough. She'll be, <laughs> you know, you're this far away, and she's laughing, right? <laughs> finally, I'll look over and say, oh, there she is. <laughs> and we both laugh together. Beloved, I want to tell you that that's the father that you have. When you feel like you can't approach the crowd and say, here, Here's my hurt and my shame. Here's what I'm carrying since childhood because I listened to the wrong voice and I've made wrong choices off that one voice 5,000 times. I've married the same person, same type of person 10 times or whatever. I've done again and again and again. And what I've seen is what I missed somehow is that God came to earth, took on the flesh, and he came to meet meet us in our hiding place. And he's come to find you today. So I want to ask you this question. What voice have you listened to? You know it right now. I don't have to ask it twice. (laughs) What voice have you listened to? What choices are you making? Excuse me. What choices have you made because of that voice? But the Messiah says, when I come, those lying voices that took you captive, I'm going to cause them to pay for the rebuilding in your life. I'm going to exact them. How does that work under the new covenant? It's called a testimony. We take possession of it. And he says, I'm going to cause that to pay. And where you thought was, I'm going to give you double back for that. I'm going to give you a double. Well, you'll shout for joy in your possession. I need thee. Stand to your feet. <clears throat> what key did you play out against, huh?
Okay, the risk of saying what I'm about to say is you might misinterpret what I'm saying and why. I don't need you to come and tell me that I'm a good pastor or teacher or psalmist or whatever it is I do. I really, I, I don't, I don't need that. But when you want to pick a point of shame, see all of what we do in ministry these days, I'm 62. And when the adversary begins to whisper at the front of your life, you don't have enough experience to be legitimate. Then when you start to get to the end, that you don't have enough time left to matter. All the voices of culture and the garden begin to speak. You don't know this or know that. You're not cool or whatever. <clears throat> These are just realities, realities we all deal with. Again, I do not have any need for you to respond and pat me on the back, send me a well-intentioned email, even though many of you will do that because you're just, you're wired that way with great precious grace. I'm just going to pick one. We've been here 17 years, and when we moved here 12 years ago to this building, from in there, you know, it's the question about just God's will is He opening the door, and he, and there just clearly were things that we never said it was God's will. We'll say it seems good to us in the Holy Spirit, as quoting Acts, and so we followed the path. And if you move there, what will happen? Well, you see, I'm not aware that over the time moving here, the housing crash and this that, and during one 14-month period, we went from an annual budget of 2.2 million to 963,000 dollars. 60% crash. You have no idea the little voices that haunt and said, if you were really a spiritual man, you would have seen that coming, known that. You've led them to a place of struggle and disaster. I'm the pastor that knows that six or seven years ago, there were about twice the number of people in this building on Sunday morning that there are right now. It's your fault, Tom. If you were better this and better that, I've even had some people suggest that, you know, if you would dress differently and do this differently and one thing or another differently, it would, would, would grow. Some people don't just, just don't want to drive here because we're this far out and all the extra traffic on Sunday morning and all of that stuff. But see, I'm just picking one. I could give you five or six. But the adversary will find points of shame and use it to absolutely cause us to withdraw, go into a cave, separate myself from you and get away from God because, you know, we all know that God's equally ashamed, right? So when I ask you and I'm about to pray the prayer, I could pick one of three or four other ones that are echoing voices of shame. You know, the Bible says, 1 Corinthians 13, that until we see him face to face at the end of the age, we will know as we were known, but now we see through a glass darkly. It's going to be a struggle. Romans chapter 8 says, we're going to groan until the end of the age when we finally see him, and then it will be that. That means this, we're going to fight against hiding every day. There is no one final thing we cross in this life and this age where the echoes and the temptation of the adversary are not whispering, hissing, pulling us back into shame and getting us to hide. So go ahead and be relieved because you see that's the way that's sort of the way the devil doubled down on it you're not supposed to be a person that lives in shame you have shame everybody get what i'm talking about he does it to us 
convinces us to believe us and then indicts our spirituality for believing the whisper. He's worked so hard to get us to whisper. Anybody get what I'm talking about? But beloved, what I want to tell you is right where we are, right how you are. The incarnation, that is Jesus coming to the planet and taking on flesh, was a statement about I am going to bear myself to you and come and meet you. I am going to come out of hiding from the other side of the cosmos. I'm going to walk before you and meet you right where you are. I want to tell every person with a, that's had a fail, failed marriage that's struggling with one right now or you struggle with competency or self-worth or whatever, there's a God right here this morning that's come to meet you right where you are. Right where, even though I just can't say it out loud to anybody else, at some point, I pray that there is that person. I don't know that there'll ever be a bigger list than two or three. But there's that one, because I still believe that where John says, if we confess our sins to him, he will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But if we confess our sins one to another, he heals us. Thankfully, frankly, I I feel that when we get to that point, it's the point where we finally spit in the eye of the adversary and say, you'll not hold me here anymore. So there's no come to the altar moment. There's a wide-eyed look you right in the face. You don't have to raise your hand, because if we were transparent, every person in here would raise their hand. So where is that shame that comes to mind for you this morning? Great, it's there. We don't have to think hard. What I want to do is I want to let you know that there's a God that's meeting you right where you are right now, that he's come to join you in the joy of the moment that says, I'll talk to you right from your hiding place. It doesn't, you see, he came to see them in the garden. And did you notice he didn't say, until you come out from where you are, we are not going to have a conversation. I don't know why that got me and how I've missed that for all these decades. But that just whole week long, I've gone, whoo, whoo, whoo. He'll talk to me right where I am right now. He'll talk to you right where you are right now. Even though you're scared to tell your wife, you're scared to tell your husband, you're scared to tell your mom or dad or friend or whatever. He's right there right now. And he he just wants to lean in and say, we can talk about it because I already know anyways. Father, I pray that that joy we would take with us today. Go ahead and lift up a hand of covenant. We receive this from you. We reach out and take your hand and pull back from heaven's side. I love you and I praise you. May we see you coming to us and saying, we are found in you. We are found in you. (laughs) And I'm so glad you found me. I love you and I praise you and I worship you and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm going to turn and have you talk to one another. You'll be relieved and say, dude, I hope it's not another naked thing. That's not. You're safe. Okay. Go ahead. I just want you to turn. Look one person. Don't say it at the same time. Take turns. Look them right in the face and say... He already knows. He already knows. Thank you for joining us for the New Hope Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast or other resources, visit newhopeonline.com.